There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and a big welcome to another edition of the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. And uh, today we've got an absolutely fascinating subject. We're going to be talking about office politics with uh, with Adrian Furnham. In fact, he's Professor Adrian Furnham. And I'll share a little bit of information about uh, Adrian and his incredible uh, background in, in a moment. Um, firstly, I'd like to though say a big thank you to Tom Davis. Uh, Tom was on the show last week and he, he talked about standing up for positive change. And it was a great case study where Tom has taken a a large a segment of a marketplace where he's seen um, real problems, which is the healthcare system in the US, and he has created his business supporting people um, around um, you know overcoming those issues. And he's identified a new market opportunity, which was for um, helping to clinicians to um, to offer their services via the telephone and, and build their business that way. So if you're interested in uh, in being disruptive in marketplaces that maybe need uh, some disruption, then do go and listen to that. It'll be thought provoking. So today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, this fascinating subject of office politics. And it's amazing. We've had 336 hours of unique shows on the Business Elevation uh, show. And I think it's probably um, well, it, almost the first time we've talked about this. We talked about it once with uh, Jeff B. Cohen, um, who is a, uh, a negotiator um, over in Hollywood. Um, Jeff was famous for being Chunk in the uh, Spielberg movie The Goonies in his early life. But we talked about Machiavellian kind of ways. And I think um, you know, office politics is, is interesting because it's known for you know, potentially being very manipulative, you know, and, and, and underhand. But actually, you know, my guest will share today, there's the opportunity to become politically savvy and skillful whilst also operating ethically and with integrity, which is something that's very important to this show that we, you know, we very much believe in doing business for good. Now, Adrian Furnham was educated at the London School of Economics. He obtained a distinction in an MSc in Economics at University of Oxford, Oxford University, where he completed a doctorate in 1981. He's, he's got other degrees as well. He was um, a lecturer in psychology at Pembroke College, Oxford. He was professor of psychology at University College London. Um, he's lectured widely all over the world. He's um, uh, very much involved with scholarships and visiting professorships and amongst others at the University of New South Wales, University of the West Indies, University of Hong Kong, um, KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. He's been a uh, visiting professor at Henley Management College and uh, is an adjunct professor of management at the Norwegian School of Management. Uh, I could go on and on and on. He works with um, a wealth management company in the city of London and also consults with many organizations in various different sectors, airlines, banks, civil service, uh, across many, many different countries. He's written over 1,200 scientific papers and 85 books, which 
I just think it's amazing. I'm surprised he's got time to talk to us. In fact, he's probably must be writing right now um, to be able to mm-hmm. produce the amount of content that he, he produces. Um, he's um, a little bit like uh, Noel Coward. He believes that work is more fun than fun. He considers himself a well-adjusted alcoholic. He, he rides his bicycle to work, which he's always done. Um, he doesn't have a mobile phone, and he loves traveling to exotic uh, countries, arguing at dinner parties and going to the theater. So a huge welcome today to Adrian Thurman. Thank you very much indeed. Can I make one correction? It's a well-adjusted workaholic, not a well-adjusted alcoholic. Oh, so, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a mistake to make. Oh, thank you very much. There for they are. <laughs> That's all right. Uh-huh. I'd say it's good. I shall remember this interview for, forever now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, it's interesting, actually. We have had um, we have had a number of recovering alcoholics on the show, recovered alcoholics on the show. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, a workaholic. Workaholic. Agent, I could just sort of sense a little bit in your accent, which is, is not... Uh, not from England, but although you've got a very um, English accent as well. You know, tell us a little bit about the part of the world that you derive from and you know, maybe um, share a little bit about you know, your background and the, the lessons that you had while growing up that have helped you today. Well, you clearly got a good ear. Yes, indeed. I was born and uh, grew up in South Africa. My parents were English. My mother was a missionary, and I spent the first 20 years of my life there. I think, you know, your early childhood does leave a mark on you. I think it leaves you with various traits and and perceptions of the world. I have the good misfortune, I think, of not having very wealthy parents. Most of my colleagues were more lucky than me, or they think they were more lucky. I think the opposite. I think uh, the fact that I had to make my own money and understand money was a great gift my parents had. They valued education. They gave me great love and support, but we didn't have much money. And in that sense, I became more interested in making money. I also, because of my mother's religious beliefs, was endowed in um, uh, early Protestantism. So I had the values of the work ethic, of self-reliance, of competitiveness, of saving rather than spending money. And I think over the years, I have seen these traits in myself as being, as, being, as being beneficial. Maybe you could indeed attribute my workaholism uh, to this uh, work ethic, the idea that working is a good thing, it's a healthy thing, it's desirable, uh, it's something that allows you to exploit your talents. So overall, I came to England when I was in my early 20s. I was a draft dodger. I was escaping the apartheid system, uh, but it was easy for me because I had a British passport and I came to the London School of Economics and have fallen in love with London. I don't want to live anywhere else. It's the place I am now and always want to be. Well, what a fascinating background. And so, that, so did, the, did this missionary work mean that you, you spent quite a lot of time in you know, underprivileged areas of South Africa and removed, moved around, or did you, did you stay in one place? Uh, stayed in one place. Uh, my mother was, the only interesting consequence of that is because my mother worked in a mission hospital, I, uh, in my first years of schooling, I was the only boy at a girls' school. Uh, there were no boys' schools around. So I went to the girls' school, but I was too young to appreciate the great advantage I had at the time. 
Excellent. So what, what age do you then find yourself uh, with uh, in a boys' school? or, or so, uh, when, when she moved, when we moved, I then, we moved into a small town, and then there was a, it was a Catholic convent, but it had boys and girls. So for the first few years of my life, I was taught by Catholic nuns. I'm not sure if that led any particular impression on me. But I soon uh, went to a, my parents moved because of my education. It was a very thoughtful thing to do into a part of South Africa, which was known for its good schools and its university. So I had at the time, I think, uh, a good education for which I'm always grateful. I think there's nothing more beneficial in life than a good education. Mm. And, and what made you leave South Africa? And Oh, it was the apartheid system. I was, sorry, you said that, I yeah. was called up to uh, for military service. Um, and if you called up to fight for a cause you don't believe in, uh, this constitutes uh, significant problems. So there was um, there were only two options, three options. You could uh, be called up into the army. You could go to prison for six years, or you could leave the country. So I left the country. It wasn't a difficult decision. But because my parents were British and I had a British passport, this was a huge advantage over some of my colleagues, some of whom went to prison for six years for refusing to fight. Um, it was a, a difficult thing to do in a difficult time. Wow, I think that you made a wise decision, I think. In, uh... I did, I did. I was lucky, as I said, I had a passport so I could travel, not all my friends could. But once I left the country, I couldn't uh, go back for a number of years. But you know, overall, I think these these difficulties and hardships are tests of one's character, um, and I think sometimes they make you or break you. And I think it strengthened me uh, some of those early hardships, which have led me to become more resilient over time. And indeed, so do you think that you know, it must have taken a lot of courage to go and do that? And then, did that make you know, maybe some other strides that you needed to make forward, maybe not seem quite so hard because you'd made yes, this transition? I don't, I don't think it took much courage on my part. In fact, one of the books I'm writing at the moment, because I always write one, uh, more than one at the time, is about the biography of leaders, not their psychology, not their personality, but their biography, because I'm fascinated by the extent that such a high number of uh, very successful people have had early setbacks Many have had the death of a parent. Now, there can be nothing on earth as awful as the death of a parent. But if you have the death of a parent and you get through this experience, that you have somebody who could perhaps rescue you and support you, then after that, really nothing can threaten you as much again. You've been to the darkest night of the soul and recovered from it. And if you look at uh, uh, some of our great leaders, our great scientists, our great uh, artists, They've often had handicaps. They might have, might have had a physical handicap. They might have been forced by their parents to travel a great deal. And this has, for many of them, given them a, uh, a resilience, a robustness, so that when they've had to face the tribulations of life, these tribulations, which seem catastrophic, really are rather minor compared to those early experiences. Now, I'm not... I don't advocate giving children nasty experiences, but I think, you know, the idea that you learn, in my view, from your mistakes much rather than, rather than from your successes. I don't think you learn a lot from success except to carry on doing what you've always done, but you learn more from failure or from difficulty and how you respond, how other people respond, and what you should do differently. 
And when you look at the uh, entrepreneurs, I'm particularly interested in, in entrepreneurs. I'm interested in why so many migrants are entrepreneurs. I wrote uh, an article recently in the Wall Street Journal on this particular topic. And I think, you know, entrepreneurs have had to um, do some rather difficult things. They've had to leave their country. They've left a lot of uh, social support behind them. Some of them experience considerable uh, prejudice of one sort or another. And these difficulties, rather than break them, make them. And so both in America and in Great Britain, and I can't speak for other countries, we have a very high percentage of very successful millionaires uh, and entrepreneurs as being migrants, people who have taken up a challenge, faced difficulty, and overcome it. And they are, for me, uh, wonderful examples and wonderful heroes, even those who were not migrants. One of the things you notice about successful entrepreneurs is the way in which they pick up themselves after they failed. Nearly all of them have failed a number of times, particularly in early adventures. But rather than it make them stop wanting to become entrepreneurs, they say, well, what can I learn from this? What will I not do again? What should I do differently? And they pick themselves up, dust themselves down and try all over again. And I always admire that spirit. I think uh, it really that's uh, very, very true. And it is, it is very, very admirable that. And I just wonder, you know, you've been so prolific with your writing. I, I don't think there's, you know, is there a psychologist who's uh, <laughs> written more than you? Uh, there is one who's written more papers and one who's written more books, but no one has written both the same together. It's, um, it's become a bit of an obsession, you know, us academics, we used to say uh, publish or perish, and I took that seriously. Um, and it's a skill, and it's, it, but it's also, it's fun. It's my hobby. It's not my, it's not work writing. I, if I don't write a thousand words a day, I feel as if something's wrong. But it's, it's once you get into the habit, uh, you'll see this in journalists, you'll see it in writers, it's a joy. It's it's fun and it's a joy. And doing research is uh, exploring one's curiosity. It's asking questions and trying to find the answer to some issues. I was writing a paper this afternoon on postponement of gratification and how parents teach this in their children and how you can measure it in children age five or six and see how this has a beneficial effect 50 years later. Some of your listeners will know about the marshmallow test, which is a test of exactly this. It fascinated me, and so I'm writing a paper of, on that. At, well, I was writing it today. I'll be writing something else tomorrow. I don't finish these papers. I you know, move, push the, um, uh, the P forward or push many Ps forward at the same time. It's the way I best write. When I get stuck on a project, I drop it and then come back to it later. But it's not a chore at all. It's, it's a joy. Um, and, you know, as an academic, we're not paid for this. We're not paid for our papers, although sometimes you are. But you paid for the excitement and the thrill of, of learning something and sometimes of being quoted and sometimes of being able to talk to others uh, about my research. So I never see myself as a slave or a, a, a workaholic in the negative sense. I see it as someone able to pursue their passions. And I think of myself as very lucky as a consequence. I think uh, it, it. I think you know, talking to you, use that word curiosity, and I, I sense that you're somebody with a huge amount of curiosity, and and somebody who enjoys, you know, observing and, and understanding, you know, how people how people behave, um, yes, and uh, and, and explaining it in 
you know, through your writing. I think that curiosity is an important, important skill. I think it's the most attractive characteristic that you can have in anybody. I have some colleagues. I have uh, one who's in his early 70s and is more like a little boy because of his curiosity. His, everything's exciting. He wants to know how things work and how, why they break down and how we can describe them better. And it's a very desirable characteristic. And I think it's something, if you are selecting people uh, for any job, I always look for curiosity. It's, it's related to intelligence, but it's not only intelligence. It's something else besides an openness to experience a, a, a wonder of the world, a bright-eyedness. And I think that's very attractive. I was uh, interviewing, I interviewed a senior member of, uh, of Costa Coffee, I remember, and I asked them what were their key criteria for interviewing candidates was number one was curiosity ah i'm totally in agreement with that uh, and i also interviewed um marshall thurber who's a very very fascinating and successful man in the united states and in his 70s and i asked him at the end of the interview he asked me lo- after, off air he asked me loads of questions about myself and i was really flattered and i said what's you know looking back on all your success what's the number one uh, lesson that you could share with people and he said be more interested than interesting. Ah, very nice. Yes, epithet. I concur with that exactly. So we're going to go to commercial break now. Um, after the commercial break, we're going to find out about office politics and uh, obviously find out what, what it is and uh, and also how to how to do it. You know um, why it's a skill that we should actually uh, consider and uh, not be completely repelled by. So we're back again with you in just a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Adrian Furnham, and I'm loving this conversation that we've been having with him. And uh, we got really curious, I think, before the break and discussed the importance of curiosity and Adrian's um, fascinating background and his, you know, his um, absolute desire and passion for writing. So now I want to, I saw that Adrian had written a paper on office politics and um, it was a subject I've not heard 
you know, really addressed. It's sometimes kind of like the elephant in the room, really. And I, I want to just ask you, Adrian, you know, isn't politics something of a bad word? You know, it seems to suggest, you know, dirty tricks and, as you say in one of your articles, Machiavellian manipulation. Or is there a more positive side? Well, I think if you say to people, you know, I often begin, I run a few courses on office politics, and I say to people on a 10-point scale, how political is your organization? I often get people saying, well, about 11 or 12 on a 10-point scale. And so, you know, the, the, the issue is people believe that um, whatever the organization says about its, its, its values and, and its, its mission that the way you get on in organizations is backstabbing and and uh, power-broking, and it's not open and clear, and as people say. Uh, the trouble is, of course, organizations are very worried about it. Uh, they don't want to admit this office politics. And with one or two that I've done, uh, that I, I, I've dealt with, they we, I run these uh, half-day courses and someday full-day courses on on office politics, and they've been very, very successful. Because what I say is, is that you, what what needs to do um, is to rebrand office politics. Office politics is is in many ways dirty. It's undermining. It's under the belt. It's not desirable. It's Machiavellian. But I think a man called De Luca. I read this book about 10, 15 years ago now, and I myself went on a course. And it changed my mind completely. And the argument is that you can turn it around and say it's, it's about being savvy. Organizations are run by individuals, run by individuals with their weaknesses and their, and their uh, uh, picadillos and so forth. And they're not completely rational, logical systems. They aspire to be like that. And so we as individuals try and influence and charm and persuade one another. And it's quite clear that some people do it very well. They are able to work out what's going on. They can see hidden agendas. They can pick up the cues from other individuals. And they can do this um, for the benefit of themselves and the benefit of others. And to some, it's, you know, it's almost inconceivable that you can be savvy and act with integrity. I have had in my time a number of different bosses, and I recall one who is an amazing man, uh, incredibly networked, incredibly charming. And if you wanted to be nasty, you could say he was political. He was the best boss I ever had because he was so, so savvy, so insightful. If you wanted something done, you went to him. He understood how the organization worked. He understood how other organizations worked. And so he was um, a, a savvy uh, person with, with political skill. And I think the, you know, the word politics has got such a negative connotation that if you could turn it around into savvy, and I believe you can, you can teach people some of the important skills of what it means to be savvy. There's a, there's a whole research tradition on this, on, on political skill. It's um, run out of America by a man called Ferris, and there's a, a German who's worked on this. It's about 20 or 30 very good academic papers, and they show quite clearly that a person's political skill predicts their success in the organization. It predicts how fast they move up the organization. And it's not to do with them being Machiavellian or backstabbing. It's to do with the fact that they understand how human systems work, how organizations work. 
And we can all learn to be more savvy, be more persuasive, be more insightful. And in that sense, I think it's a very positive concept. So it's my aim to say, well, let's not talk about it because we pretend it doesn't exist and it's very dirty. Rather, let's say, this is something that's very useful. Let's try and learn something from this and teach ourselves and our organization to do it better. That's very, very interesting. And it shows a, you know, a demarcation in, in, in awareness between um, people who, who maybe don't, don't rise into up an organization as far as they might anticipate, but have, have got the intellect. It's, there, is, there is this, uh, this ingredient, isn't there, which yes. people possess. What DeLuca says, he says that if you look at a big organization, about 80% of the people he calls avoiders. They try and avoid office politics. They might be cynical about it. They might believe that it, over time the mist will clear and things will become more fair, or who just don't play the game. On the other hand, there's 20% who do get involved in politics, but they are dividable into, into two categories. They're the Machiavellians, the ones who are political in the negative sense of the word, as well as the politically savvy. And there's a small, relatively small percentage of them. Uh, and you, you can see it if you go and work in an organization. And, and one of the great advantages of being a consultant is that one goes into organizations and it's struck dramatically first of all, by the organizational culture. People who've been in an organization for a long period of time really don't understand their culture. They think everything's normal. You have to talk to newcomers to talk about you know, the, the uh, unwritten rules of the organization. Some of these rules are how you deal with each other, who you go to, and so forth. And there's a lot of, a lot of quote, savvy or politics in that. So I'm fascinated by organizations which are more political than others. Now, there are all sorts of possible reasons. It might be that they are that there's competition for jobs, that, that there's very high competition to get promoted, and this leads to political activity. Or more often, it might be there's no clear definition of performance. That is, you know, in sales, it's very easy to measure sales because you've got revenue and calls and so forth. It's much more difficult in other jobs. And where it's a bit cloudy, maybe it's more political. It's also uh, where there's uh, fighting over limited resources, or the organizations are in very high or low change mode. So some organizations are more prone to this behavior, but being a savvy operator in life, being, it's, it's a life skill in my view, to be politically skillful, to be politically savvy, to know how organizations, how systems work, and to therefore, you could be more able to do well in those systems, to, to be both more happy and more successful. So are there some, you mentioned there about, about systems and knowledge, yeah, and yeah. there's aspects of kind of psychology and understanding people here. Yeah. Um, you know, from your experience, are there some, you know, what are the key components of political savviness? When the... Uh, researchers measure political skill, they have decided that there are four components. Um, I'll just mention them and then talk to them in a little detail. The first one is called social astuteness, the second interpersonal influence, the third networking ability, and the fourth apparent sincerity. I'll talk about that one because that always excites a lot of interest. I think the first one is, is social astuteness. What does this mean? It means being perceptive. 
it means being able to read people well. Um, you know, one of the attributes one supposedly has as a psychologist is that we are picking up stuff. I teach people how to recognize liars, how to detect uh, people uh, not entirely telling the truth, what cues you look for. And I think when you're with politically savvy people, they read the room better. They read the motors of individuals. They can see when they may be hiding a, something in their agenda that they are, uh, they are sensitive uh, to all the cues. Now, this is related to emotional intelligence, but it's more than emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the awareness of your emotions and the emotions of others, and also the ability to uh, uh, um, manage your emotions and the emotions of others. So it's very similar to that, but it's about being able to see in meetings and in groups what's going on, who likes one another, who doesn't, when certain agenda items come up that nobody wants to talk about, the, the reading of the room, the, the insightfulness, the perceptiveness uh, is the first category I think that's important. The second is uh, influence uh, and interpersonal influence and to some extent negotiation. You know, if you, as I do, I work for some organizations who have their own internal training departments, which they call universities. And if you offer various courses, the one that's always the most uh, popular is negotiation skills and influence. Because you negotiate with your children, you negotiate with your partner, you negotiate with your boss, you negotiate with your uh, colleagues. And to be good at this and to be influential is an incredibly important skill. Now, there's one, I think, very good book written on this. It's simply called Influence, written by a man called Cialdini. Mm. And he goes through some of these very simple techniques that people use. You can see them every day. So the technique of reciprocity, I give in order to receive. The idea of social proof, of telling uh, that other people, the data on other people doing these uh, uh, certain things. And you can learn these skills of being influential. And when I deal with my senior managers on these courses, I say, look, I'm going to talk about scarcity and reciprocity and consistency and authority and, and these things. Now, these are psychological words for things you know about, you will recognize. But the question is, which of these are you not using enough and which are you overusing? And one of the things you notice in... Uh, skillful negotiators and skillful and politically skillful people is they have a armory of these techniques they can use more at the same time they can with this person with this client with this colleague they will use this technique to persuade them because they know that works best with them and for another individual they use a, another technique it sales people are very familiar with these and that indeed it's quite a, a, a one of my fun activities to be sold to, to see to what extent they're using these techniques and how they use them on me. Now, I don't think, you know, I think uh, the ability to sell, the ability to persuade is a very powerful skill. It's a very powerful skill in business. You need to persuade your colleagues, your clients, uh, your subordinates and so forth. So that's part of the armory of somebody who has political skill. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um yeah, I really get that. I just um, I do occasionally 
I, I also like being sold to as well. I used to be a sales trainer at Mars years years ago, and and I also love to see. It, the challenge today, maybe quite a few of us are, are aware of some of these techniques, and we spot them instantly. Yes. But and the risk of that, though, is it does does kind of lead to a bit of a lack of trust because when you know you've got a, a technique that's being applied on on you, the um the the, the thing though, I suppose, is whether it's applied well. <laughs> well, uh, one of the attacks that people make of psychologists is that we are very manipulative, that we're teaching people skills to manipulate. And yet I, I tell people the story of I was in, in Brazil and I, I was there for some time and when I go away for long periods of time my wife likes a little bit of jewellery brought back and I went into the jewellery store and this man did everything that you'd expect. You know, The first thing he said, ah, so we're in Brazil, Brazil is famous for coffee, would you like a, a glass of, or a cup of coffee? And of course I thought, yes, all right, he's gone on reciprocity. And then he established some similarity between us, like, like uh, you know, where do you come from, London, oh, his cousin lives in London, so forth, and scarcity. And he went through the whole list of these. And I tell people this, this story, because it's quite an interesting one, showing all the techniques he used. And then they ask me, well, did you buy the jewel? And the answer is yes, I bought it. He was very persuasive. I liked the jewelry. But he did his job well, and that's all he's doing. He's doing his job well, and he's learned these techniques, but he applied them to me with, I think, enough. It was one or two things he said, which I wasn't entirely certain he was uh, sincere. But what he did was he sold well, and that's his job. And, you know, you have to, in, in organizations, you have to sell your ideas. You have to sell your beliefs. You have to sell your values. There's nothing wrong with selling. And if that's considered to be uh, a political skill, then or jolly good in my view. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I had somebody very poorly trying to sell me uh, some windows a, a, two or three years ago, and he, he gave me a parting shot after using some of these techniques quite badly, which was, um, look, you know, you have a nice BMW outside. Um, do you really want to, um, you know, spend, buy windows that could more, you know, more reflect a Ford Mondeo when um, <laughs> you could have a BMW? And I said, well, actually, it's funny you should say that. I'm, I'm considering that when I replace my car that I might get a more cost-effective car like a Ford Mondeo. <laughs> he, he walks out very frustrated. Um and uh, I heard him telling his boss he knows about sales was um, the words I heard him on his phone say. <laughs> so he brought the boss in as well to talk to me and all that kind of thing. But I yes. think people do it well. It's, it's, it's good. So we've got just a couple of minutes till commercial break. I just wonder if maybe you've got a you know, strategy that you've seen adopted by politically savvy people that would be good to share. We'll maybe chat about a few well, more after the break. The, we'll chat about this after the break, but the one characteristic is that I think is terribly important is networking. Now, cynics say there's only one letter difference between networking and not working, but they're wrong. And some people talk about networming. And for an organization, I was teaching political skills, and these people in the room, there are a number of them, sort of middle-ranking to senior managers. And I say to them, I say, I can make a prediction on your success in this organization. If you all stay 10 years in this organization and there's only one thing I could know about you, what I would want to know is about your network. That is, the, the people you know in the organization, how many you know, in what sectors they know. Can I download from your head your map of the organization? There's something in most organizations called an organogram where you have head of this and deputy that, and it's all set out in a logical sort of way. But it's not like that. And 
what you notice with politically skillful people, if they want something done in HR, they know who to contact in HR. If they want something done in, in, in marketing, they know who is the best person to contact. They know the person because they're approachable, they're knowledgeable. And it's very rarely that the top person, it, it doesn't follow logically from the organogram. And it's the size and complexity and subtlety and diversity of your network. So for me, networking ability, particularly within your own organization, and you can see those who are not very politically savvy, they know the people around them, they know people in their section, they know people in their, in their, in, in, in their silo, but they don't network very well. And one of the great characteristics you always notice about those who are politically savvy and politically skillful is that they get to know quite quickly who does what in the organization so that when they need it, they can call upon specific individuals who are able to help them and help their colleagues. Fantastic. We're going to go to commercial break now. So we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that after the break. So we're back with you again in just a couple of minutes. So do join us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Adrian Furnham. We're talking about office politics. I should also mention, I want to sort of thank you to Business Growth Bureau, who do amazing work around um, sort of helping you understand and develop leads through LinkedIn for their support with the with the show. Um, and um, also, you know, big thank you to my good friend, Neil Lawton, who's um, a well-known adventurer and speaker and entrepreneur who introduced me to Adrian Furnham over a wonderful lunch a few weeks ago. So, um, Adrian, we were talking about networking, and uh, I guess you're here through um, my, through my network. I mentioned Neil there. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit more about, about networking, um, because I think you're right. It is a very important um, thing to do. In fact, I was just last week, 
or this was it this week only this week just telling somebody a senior leader you know just you need to do a bit more with your with you know your network when he explained it to me and you know how do how do you utilize linkedin for example you know what happens if you you find yourself without a job at some point um a lot of because a lot of people i meet are then scrambling to uh try and connect with people that they've met through their careers and and utilize linkedin uh, your network is important isn't it Absolutely. And of course, the media, uh, social media offer wonderful opportunities for this. And young people have, have picked this up um, uh, enormously. But one of the things you find with those who are not so young, they, they uh, have all sorts of different groups. Um, many, many uh, I, I speak of to, to consort here. And these are where individuals bring people together. Um, they might be HR people, they might be marketing people, uh, to hear a speaker. But the major aim is to uh, meet each other, to meet like-minded people and see what you, how you can help each other. If you think of great organizations like the Rotary Foundation, that's exactly what they do. They are a networking organization. That's how they started out. And they provide uh, mutual help, but also they do very, very good works. And so it's, as I said, it's the size and complexity and the comfort with which people do it, that they understand what so the possibility that social events offer. They offer, you know, uh, just before uh, speaking to you, I was at an event and I discovered three people. We were talking about behavioral economics where we had something in common. We've swapped cards. We will email tonight. We'll meet again. So it was a chance meeting and I've got three contacts this afternoon. Um, and I think uh, if you avail yourself of the opportunities to meet people and you understand how your contribution to them, that you could have some uh, reciprocal, uh, happy arrangement, this must you know, increase your, 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 your skill, increase the possibilities you have of calling upon help, calling upon expertise of others. It's, it's interesting too, isn't it, how, how you, if you push yourself into situations and chance meetings. It doesn't have to always be in a business context where opportunities come from. I, Absolutely. I, I, met uh, a, I had an opportunity of, to uh, go to a school reunion, from which was literally people I've not seen for 35 years. And the first person I, I met there was somebody we didn't recognize each other, asked me what I do, and, and uh, I just explained, that's so funny, I'm, I'm looking for someone just like you to work with my team, and I've got the budget. Can you call me next week and give me a car? Uh, perfect. <laughs> you know, in England, as you know, to call somebody an opportunist is usually uh, an insult. And if people say to me, I'm an opportunist, I always thank them because I see an opportunist as somebody who sees an opportunity and seizes that opportunity. Of course, it's meant in a derogatory way or that you don't make, um, uh, you don't put too much effort into things. You just like an opportunist thief. But I think any, any cocktail party, any event is the opportunity to meet people, to find out what they do to let them know what you do and to see if you have something in common and you can help each other. I, I think that's hugely beneficial. And all those with political skill have worked that out. Yeah. I must say there's one other of these characteristics that the political skill people are talking about, which is perhaps the most controversial. And they call it apparent sincerity. And I always say to people, you know, there are three types of labor. There's physical labor, and I don't think you and I work for our livings by physical labor, then there's intellectual or cognitive labor. But there's another type of labor, and that's emotional labor. 
So you see people in the service industries and indeed salespeople who labor emotionally. When you go on an aeroplane or when you go to a restaurant, they are laboring emotionally. They say to you, well, welcome, sir, lovely to see you. Well, do they really feel lovely to see you? I'm not certain. There was a wonderful book called The Managed Heart, and it's all about emotional labor and how in some jobs you are required to put on a persona. You, you, you require of your waiting staff that they are jolly and, and helpful. If they've got a headache or their pets died or they've got a bit of flu, they are not, it's not appropriate to let you know this. They have to labor emotionally. Now, I think apparent sincerity is like that. I mean, I was in an organization recently, and you know, if you're running a big organization, it has various departments, and some are cost centers and some are profit centers. But they're all equally important for the, for the running of that organization. And it behoves you, as the manager, to, to let people think that you think they're all equally important. Now, you might not. You might believe one, uh, you, that one part of the organization is less important than another. But you're not allowed to show that. It's inappropriate to show that. So the apparent sincerity is that skill. And you see it with politicians. You see it with businessmen. They make you feel special. At, 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 I was with uh, a rather important person I can't mention recently. I was very surprised. He was the prime minister of another country. I was very surprised that he spent 10 minutes full on with me. He made me feel as if he was really, really interested in what I was talking about. Now, he might have been. He might have been. But I was, a, I was a foreigner. I was there for the day I was leaving. But he had this ability, this ability to make me feel special. And I think that's what this apparent sincerity is. I don't think it's dubiousness. I think it's the ability to labor emotionally, to make people feel special, to make to disguise your your feelings when it's inappropriate. If you know, as a salesman, there are people you like and don't like. You can't afford to show people you don't like or don't respect that. You have to you have to be a, 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 apparently equally happy with all of them. So that's the one that gets the debate going. You know, they're quite happy to say yes, interpersonal sensitivity, and yes, being persuasive, and yes, networking. But some people are a bit unhappy with apparent sincerity because it, it seems to go against their philosophy of authenticity. Well, of course I approve of authenticity, but I think with people, dealing with people, you have to have the skill to make them feel special, to make them feel that you are interested in them. When on occasion, you're not. And that's, that's my take on this particular aspect of uh, political skill. Do you think, though, I think where you practice being more interested you, where you learn more because you ask more questions and you listen more um, but also if you make that a strategy and uh, you do it regularly you, you connect at a deeper level with people because, it's because yes. you do make them feel special so absolutely I and, totally agree with that and there's a sense of there's a sense of reward that comes back from that and that's yes. uh, you know you, you, you kind of can you find yourself glowing because you have uh, you, you've touched somebody, you've connected, maybe you've connected with them at a heart level as well, and and that relationship is is on a nice footing. Yes, absolutely. You know, I was saying today, you know, the the talking about behavioural economics that we are we are creatures of the head and creatures of the heart, and that these are connected one to another. Our head decisions are influenced by our heart, and our heart decisions are influenced by our head. And dealing with individuals. There are those 
who, coming from a particular background, always present arguments in a very rational way. They think the way in which you persuade and charm people is by logic and rationality. We know that's not true. It's not logical. It's psychological. It's not rational. It's rationalizing. And what you discover with those people who are most successful, they know this. They know that it's not that we are irrational or we shouldn't use reason, but reason alone, that the head is not enough to charm and persuade people and to be politically savvy. Do you think it also comes from, it, it, it's helpful if you've got a really kind of noble purpose at the heart of you? So then you're, Oh, yeah. I so think it's easier. You're doing it from a good place. Yes. Oh, I've no doubt of that. I think it's, it's much easier when you believe in something. But there are times when whatever you're doing, uh, it won't always be the case. You won't be fully behind something. But it, it's a requirement, a business requirement, for you to appear to be as committed as to something that is more in line with your passions and your skills and your values. And one of the things I'm finding just, just so fascinating with this conversation is is that it's, you know, I'm somebody who, who teaches leadership skills and co- coaches leaders, and I'm, I'm finding it quite fascinating. I, I, I touch on some of these things, being more interested and interesting, and, and I do a lot of work around engagement, but I've not really, you know, approached this as a, from the office politics angle and uh, as a leadership skill. And I'm just thinking, you know, should we be more actively teaching this uh, leaders, this, this savviness? Yeah, I, I think it's it's quite clear. If you use the word politics, it turns them off. But if you talk about being savvy, and there's a number of books now. That DeLuca was the first one that I read. There have been a number of others. But saying, you know, can we be more savvy? Everyone thinks being savvy is a good idea. And what does it mean? So if you unpack it in terms of these four or maybe other factors and talk through them, people recognize it immediately. They see how useful it is. And they quite encouraged to go go back to work and practice it to you know increase their network to learn a bit more about how you can be perceptive to practice some of their less uh, well used persuasive techniques all these are are, are are teachable trainable and incredibly useful and what you've noticed is that people have picked them up over life I don't you know they, they're not many courses on political skill and savvy but you pick them up in various other ways and those people who are very successful, particularly leaders, over time, they practice these and pick them up and got better at them. And that's why they are so successful, because they have these trainable skills, which they've honed and use, and are always upgrading. One of the things you notice about the political leaders, their network's always growing. They're always interested in new techniques. They're interested in persuading people on the web as opposed to face-to-face. They've always got the curiosity, the thing we talked about right at the beginning, that this factor leads them to become more savvy and therefore in time more successful. Excellent. Well, being, I've just got um, a couple of minutes or so, so we need to agree to close, really. But I just want to ask you a quick question. With you being such a prolific writer, is, um, you know, what's your... What's your top two or three people who want to you want to write more and write if write effectively? You know, be be savvy with their writing. What how I recommend with with people doing their writing? Well, yeah. find a time and a place that suits you you well. People write in very different places and uh, um, and in in different ways. Don't wait for inspiration. Uh, if you read the writers, you know, set yourself a goal: eight hundred words a day. That's it. You do eight hundred words. It's quite a good idea to stop where it's 
easy to pick up rather than where it's easy to finish. Treat it as a job and treat it as something you'll get better at. Give, give your writing to a critical colleague, a critical judge who will be gentle but firm um, and keep at it. You know, if you look at anybody in, who's written, they've often been rejected many times. Feel comfortable with doing it, but do it often. Don't wait. Don't get stuck. Don't think writing is different from talking. I was enormously fortunate. At the, at, I was in my early 30s, and I was at a dinner party, and I remember this terribly well. And the man said to me, you tell a very good story. Why don't you tell it, uh, write it as you tell it? Well, the next day I did. I submitted an article to the Financial Times, and it was accepted. And from that, I became a columnist on a number of newspapers. So I think, you know, it, people somehow think often with writing that it's so different from speaking, that the whole technique is different, that you need to wait for inspiration. Think of it as a job. Think of it as a skill that you'll polish. Go for it. Try and get some early successes. They will lead you on. Get somebody to give you a bit of uh, gentle feedback and enjoy. It is a legacy. I think you learn also to, th I think, more clearly by my writing than my speaking. I put it into words. And you have you have a legacy on the web if you if you learn to blog and you learn to blog well, if you like blogging. I find blogging quite hard because it's you have it's so short, it's like haiku. You've got to put a lot of complexity in a few words. But it's a fun activity, treat it as a fun activity and treat it as something you could get better at. And I think over time you will become like me a scribbler. Fantastic. Um, we've just got a couple of minutes left now. I wonder if you've got a final message you'd like to leave us with. Well, I, you know, recommendations for a happy life. I, I've always thought carpe diem, seize the day. You know, today is the first day of the rest of your life. When people look back at their lives, they regret things they haven't done rather than things they have done. And if you have, if something comes up, or you have, if you have an opportunity, uh, I think go for it. Go for it. Try it. Try and find out what you're good at. Um, I think we've all got some talents. Uh, it takes us a long time to find out that we haven't got talent. Some of us are lucky that we discover early. But explore your talents. I also think you know, inspiration comes from perspiration. That was a lesson from my mother in that early childhood. If you look at the great inventors, they all say this, that you work hard, you work hard, and the inspiration comes. And, and finally look back but move on you know i think we need to have learned from our experiences but not get obsessed by the past by glancing over your shoulder saying what can i learn from this but to move forward life is fast changing there's wonderful opportunities out there and to look back at what you've been given what strengths you have what strengths you can employ what other people you can be kind to do these things and i think you will be both successful and happy Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I know if you want to um, connect with Adrian, um, you can go to adrianfernan.com. Um, he's, um, he's a very, very in-demand speaker around the world. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested in booking him to speak at your next event, I'm sure you can, you can find him that way or through um, various of the sort of speaking organizations. Anywhere else that people can connect with you, Adrian, or just through, through your uh, website? That would, be the, that would be the best way, I think, yes. Fantastic. Well, Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and for me, 
chance to get you on the show again because um, you know, you're somebody I think can really, really add value to uh, people. I know you do. So, uh, so thank you very much. And uh, you, next week, sh- next week's show, we have Esther Wasiki. Uh, sorry, uh, she's talking about how to raise successful people. She's raised three incredible uh, superstar daughters, um, including the CEO of um, YouTube. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about her tried and tested methods for raising happy, healthy and successful children. Uh, once again, um, thank you for being listening to the show. Thank you, Adrian. If you've got any questions, comments, please um, send them to me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. We thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. 